Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Sasha Lucioni. Sasha is a postdoc at Mila. Sasha, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks, glad to be here. Awesome. So we are going to be spending some time today talking about your research into the climate change implications of machine learning, a bunch of interesting stuff. But before we dive into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, how you came to work on this problem of climate change, and in particular, the ML and AI implications with regard to it. Uh, how'd you get How'd you get into this? So after I finished my PhD uh, four years ago now, I went to work as an AI researcher, and um, I realized that there was a really big difference between my work and uh, my personal values. So I, I've been a climate activist for, for a good part of my life, and then I realized that it would be good to, to, to actually connect the two. And so about two years ago, Yasha Bengio posted on Facebook actually saying that he's recruiting a postdoc to work on AI and climate change projects, and I jumped on the occasion. I essentially convinced him to hire me, and uh, <laughs> I've been involved in all these amazing projects since, so that was really uh, the best decision of my life, I think. <laughs> That's awesome. Is there a backstory to what went into convincing him to hire you? I actually uh, decided to do uh, like a proof of concept because he said, oh, I want to use GANs to visualize climate change. So essentially I used like free Google Cloud credits. I didn't have access to a GPU at the time. And I spent like evenings and weekends making this GAN work. Um, it wasn't very good. I called it Karma GAN because I thought it was like karma for us being bad at climate change, <laughs> essentially. And I presented it to him and he asked me a few questions. And then he was like, so when can you quit your job? And I was like, well, that's a good question. Two weeks. <laughs> and then um, I started and uh, it was that's great. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, maybe going uh, a little further back, tell us a little bit about, you know, what kind of spurred on your interest in climate change activism? What are some of the things that you did outside of the realm of machine learning before incorporating in that aspect of your, your interests? Uh, so I've been a vegetarian since uh, I was all, like 12 years old. And one day I woke up and I was like, this doesn't make sense anymore. And then when I had kids, I realized how big a deal it was. Like it really hit home uh, because, you know, when you're talking to your children and you're projecting yourself 20 years into the future, you realize how bad society is is doing in that sense. So I think that when I had my, my first daughter, I was like, whoa, this is this is serious. And that's when I started cutting back on flights. Mm -hmm. I started really like making these changes. I think my kids could uh, sort compost, recycling and garbage from like the time they could walk, essentially, like you would give them an apple core and they knew where it went. You give a piece of paper, they knew where it went. So uh, essentially things like that, I got involved in like local organizations, the Monarch Watch, things like that. So, you know, kind of grassroots. <laughs> Nice. And then on the ML and AI side, how did you know you wanted to work in that field? What started that for you? I uh, It was funny. So I, I added Yashua on Facebook. We were kind of posting the same things, like tagging each other. And then when I joined Mila, it was at the time where this kind of climate change AI movement was getting started. Like there was the first NeurIPS uh, workshop in climate change. I went to it and then I realized there's other people that share my values. And so I reached out to them, you know, we started working together and it was really like, there's so much to be done. I think that you, we just, we just scratched the surface of what's possible and it's, it's becoming more and more of a thing. And so the more I work, the more I get involved, the more projects there are, the more opportunities there are. It's really, it's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. and, and before 
combining climate change and ML, you mentioned that you were doing ML engineering on just kind of other topics, standard machine learning. What prompted that interest or and how did that evolve? So I was always a huge fan of NLP more specifically. So I actually have a bachelor's in linguistics and then I got into like natural language processing, like old school and then into, into machine learning and deep learning. So my first job was creating question answering systems for like companies who want to bot on their website, for example, a chatbot. And in my second job, I was actually working uh, in finance, doing all sorts of NLP applications to analyze documents, like news reports, things like that. And it was really cool. I thought it was really, really interesting what I did, because it was essentially like someone gives you a puzzle and you have to solve it. And then when you've solved it, someone else will take care of like the actual operationalization. So that's always fun. But I, I felt that it was lacking a certain depth. So that's why I, I decided to, to do this postdoc, because I really wanted like my, my morals to, to percolate in my work. Nice, nice. So you mentioned some of the work that you're doing with visualizing climate change with GANs, and we will dig deep into that. But before we do, you're also involved in an organization called climatechange.ai. Tell us a little bit about that group and uh, what you're doing there. Yeah. So when I joined Mila two years ago, there was this paper brewing and it ended up being called, called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning. And yep. we're like 20 authors and it's about a hundred page paper. And it's essentially, it's really interesting. So it's, so it's all the different ways that machine learning practitioners can get involved in tackling climate change. So across the board, like in, in energy and transportation, in weather forecasting, in education and finance, like everything, you name it. And the idea is to help people to get involved and to choose uh, an area of application. So say like, I, I'm super into computer vision and I want to track biodiversity. So we have ways of like data sets that you can use, work that's already being done. So essentially we like, we try to, we try to paint the broadest picture possible of all the things that can be done. And once that paper came out in October of last year, uh, we did, we, we created this initiative called Climate Change AI. And essentially, we, we try to uh, keep the conversation going, we do research, we make connections, for example, between startups and, you know, people who want to get involved. We have a forum, uh, I'm in charge of uh, making a wiki of, uh, of all like the resources and, and, and conferences and data sets and everything that you want to get involved in a certain domain, for example. And like, what are the open problems? What haven't we solved yet? How can AI be used, for example, to ac accelerate material science? Like, there's so many opportunities. It's really quite amazing. So um, yeah, we're, we're super passionate about what we do. And uh, we're all across the world. And we organize conferences and, and publish research. And yeah, lots of lots of uh, <laughs> green green AI at work. That's awesome. That's awesome. So visualizing the consequences of climate change using GANs. Tell us more about that work. Maybe let's start with the the overall motivation behind it. Um, you know, obviously climate change, but specifically the visualization challenge and what you were hoping to accomplish with the, the work. So this was born from the mind of Yashua Bengio. When, when the Cycle GAN paper came out, it's one of the first GAN papers that could essentially do domain adaptation. So for example, you take a, a photograph of a, I don't know, a field or a forest, and then it could apply uh, a texture that looks like Monet painted it. And so it could create like apples to oranges, zebras to horses. So essentially it's a way of turning one category of things into another category of things. And so he thought that wouldn't it be interesting if we could um, make climate change more concrete by using this kind of technology, because most of the places where these kind of extreme climate events happen are um, far away from us. So the Maldives, Bangladesh, typically it's, it's, it's countries that we don't know or that aren't in our you know, daily lives. And so it's very hard to, to imagine what, what, what the consequences are. But if we brought it home, 
if we brought it to people where they live, where they work, uh, where they travel, then we can make it a lot more concrete and, and more, more specific and individual. So it's not just uh, some, you know, hypothetical flood. It's not just some abstract forest fire in Siberia. It's, it's something that could happen to you. And because climate change is going to is going to impact essentially all places in the world, but it's just a question of time. So it's like time travel with a climate change lens. Mm. So it's less about predicting on a kind of a weather radar style image, what weather patterns are going to look like and more about applying this, you know, visual style transfer idea. So, you know, this is your landscape today. And now if you crank up the temperature by a few degrees, this is what your landscape looks like at some point in the future. Yeah, and actually there's a, a few projects that we built on. Like, for example, there's a climate analog project, which essentially maps out what climates are going to look like in 2050. So essentially it's like, oh, well, you're in D.C. Well, it's going to go south and west and it's going to be more like Kansas and it's going to be wetter and hotter. And then if you're in California, it's going to be like Mexico. It's going to be drier and hotter and things like that. So already like this kind of mapping exists, but it's still pretty abstract because like I've never been to Kansas like how I don't know what the weather's like. I don't know what the winter's like in Kansas. Does that mean it's going to be warmer? Like, and so uh, essentially, we're taking a step further. We're trying to represent like droughts and floods and smog, and 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 you know, make it a lot like make it hit home. Essentially, like this this is what we mean when we make hotter and drier. It's not just like a nicer winter. It's actually like trees are going to die. Yeah, interesting. And so, talk a little bit about the the kind of technical setup. Was this a uh, a fairly straightforward, you know, pull cycle GANs off the shelf and apply it to this problem? Or are there some technical challenges that had to go into the application? Oh, it's been a long road. So uh, <laughs> it's been a year and a half. Yeah. So essentially cycle GANs did not cut it at all because essentially they transform the whole image. And so they would actually, you know, make the color, the colors of the house different. And, and it, it almost didn't look like the same place anymore if you just did cycle GANs because it's like a generalized style transfer. So essentially now what we're doing is like a two-step approach. Uh, first, we have like an incoming image. We try to figure out, for example, in terms of flooding, where the water would go. So it's like a mask. So we, we use a, one approach to figure out uh, like the ground and then we can actually raise the ground to make it, you know, a, an actual flood. And then a second uh, neural network that will paint it and um, it's actually contextual. So it's going to look at the color of the buildings, the color of the sky and make the water uh, coherent with that. So this two step approach works relatively well, but, you know, it was a long time coming because we tried like all flavors of uh, cycle GANs, conditional GANs. Like so, so now this is what we're um, we're using for flooding. Now we're trying to do smog as well. And, you know, it's not just Photoshop because you have to take in depth into account. So we're also doing depth estimation, like, and colors because smog is different depending on the pollution that's behind it. So it's like more gray or more yellowish or orange. So we're, we're doing lots of different things. And it's actually really interesting because we learned a lot about the phenomena. Like I didn't know anything about floods when we started. Now I know mm -hmm. a whole lot about flooding and how it happens. Yeah, it, it's interesting to hear you describe the the evolution of the approach, and, and I think it, it's tempting to think that you know you're gonna have this original image, press the climate change you know button or whatever, and it's gonna spit out the desired image. But now you're successively kind of breaking the problem up, and it sounds like in your description of the the smog aspect of it, you're also kind of incorporating, you know, the physics-based models of smog as a phenomenon and how that might apply uh, in the image. Are there other areas that you're doing that kind of thing? Yeah, we're also trying to do, um, so drought and extreme heat, we're putting it together. The problem is, is that it's very hard to 
to to show heat and actually heat is actually is, is a big problem like heat waves uh, kill a lot of people and it's going to get worse but it's not very visual so you know we we're trying to make the sun brighter we we're trying to like uh, make the leaves yellow the trees yellow kind of thing um, we even tried to make the pavement crack a bit but it's not it's not doesn't have the same kind of oomph to it as uh, as flooding um, and we're also doing forest fires uh, also wildfires which is, is a big risk in a lot of places, right? Um, and so what we're using for that is simulated data. So we created a simulated world and set it on fire because there's not a lot of images of, of houses on fire, mm. it turns out. Um, so that's still a work in progress. It's still not looking as realistic as we want it to look. But um, also we had this huge debate about, is it during the fire or after the fire? Or like, what are we actually showing? Uh, mm -hmm. How much do we want to make it you know, close to the house? So it's still, it's still a work in progress. Mm -hmm. You know, talk a little bit about the data collection aspect of this project. Yeah, so it was a it was a pretty big challenge at the at the beginning. We were scraping Creative Commons and uh, all kind of the open image uh, websites, uh, and then uh, we opened an image collection website that uh, actually worked pretty well. We crowdsourced a whole like, you know, almost a thousand images of extreme weather events. So so that was enough for flooding. So for wildfires, uh, we created a, a simulated world. So we, we actually hired a, a 3D designer. He did, he did a bit of floods, but also a lot of fires. And um, it was interesting because we had to complement, like in some cases we, had, we didn't have enough data of a certain type of place, like uh, single family houses. We had mostly like downtown areas. And so we asked him to create like a suburb that he would like set on fire or flood. And that opened a whole other can of worms because there's a whole sim to real aspect that you need to do. So you can't just take simulated data and expect the model to apply to real images. So you need to do like a, a domain adaptation task there too. So it's like it's like a it's like a Russian doll. It's like you open one thing and there's another and there's another. So so finally, I think I've dipped a, a toe into all computer vision problems from segmentation to depth estimation to sim to real to domain adaptation. Like I think I've covered it all. And coming from an NLP background, I had no idea that vision was so complex. Like I just never really thought about it. I thought text was complicated. I thought that you know getting you know translation or sentiment analysis was hard, but but vision is is really hard as well. And they have like there's a whole um, you know, there's dimensionality aspects. There's all sorts of of, of kind of like the, the intrinsical uh, properties of the image that are also super important. Like if you want to work with very high dimensional images, if you need these huge models, there's a trade-off to be done between quality and time and, and things like that. Like even, you know, the for example, like the high definition GANs, like the really like, is this person, is this a real person? they train for weeks, they train for months in order to get that kind of quality. You need a crazy amount of computing power to do that. So we don't really have that, nor do we need it, but there's still a, a trade-off to be had between those two those two criteria. Mm -hmm. it, you, you kind of toss out a comparison between the NLP world and the computer vision world, and it prompted me to think about you know, how these might be combined in this project. I'm imagining, you know, you, you, there are articles about the impacts of climate change. It'd be interesting for someone to be able to like copy a paragraph from an article about how it's going to be, you know, n degrees hotter and whatever degrees more, you know, more humid and floods and then allowing folks to apply that to a, an image. Have you thought about kind of combining NLP in, the, in computer vision for this? No, we were thinking about like generating a description, kind of uh, what you say, but backwards. But it's true that if you could take uh, a place and extract it, I mean, there are there is work that's being done. I think for like visual question answering and things like that. So yep. <laughs> I think I think the project will take another two years if we do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but actually, we're working right now with climate communicators because we realized that we don't 
know how to communicate about climate change. We don't do it well because, I mean, mm. obviously we're not specialists. So we're actually going to work with people whose job it is to, to, to carry out scientific communication around this and to really, you know, package the ML to contextualize it. So it's not just like a gimmick GAN that, you know, oh, this is not a real kitten or whatever. Uh, we really want it to be and, and because there's actually research about scientific communication uh, and the value of images. And it found, for example, that you have to accompany images with a certain amount of information for people to really understand. Like if you just show, I don't know, a polar bear drowning or, or a, wind, uh, a wind turbine, that's not necessarily enough for people to, to act or for people to, to really understand what, what's being conveyed. So you really need to contextualize it so people understand this is like, this is a wind turbine. It, it works like this. And the potential of it is this. And, and you really need to yeah, frame it well. Do you ultimately see these images as a a tool for consumers, kind of the broader layperson community to understand the the impacts, you know, kind of a almost like an exhibition type of thing? Or do you are you envisioning kind of scientific impacts here where they can be part of the, you know, the scientific process and exploring climate change? I'd say a bit of both. So we've typically um, thought about it as an awareness slash education uh, yeah. project. So we actually have educators who are, who are willing to, to use this, for example, in high school. So I think that's really interesting as well, because it's not the same as textbooks, right? Because uh, nowadays, kids learn about climate change in textbooks, which is great. But what kind of images do you show? And um, we're open sourcing all our code. And hopefully people will use these images to you know, to, to convey whatever message they, they need, whatever they're talking about at the time. Like, think about it, like, say yeah, you work in, in, in climate change, like you're a climate scientist, and you go to a place, and then you, you pick the landmark of yeah, Kansas City, and you flood it, and you say, hey, well, like, this, this is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the Maldives. I'm talking about Kansas City, right? So I think that it could be really powerful, because typically climate imagery is, is kind of the run-of-the-mill polar bears and ice caps melting, but there's so much more to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what was the, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the kind of the technical challenges, you know, specific to, to GANs, you know, what were some of the, the main challenges that you ran into in, in trying to take advantage of, of the GANs? So GANs are very finicky. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's actually, yeah, because it's essentially two neural networks, right? And yeah. one neural network is hard. Two neural networks is even harder. And so, you know, first we were really trying to do the the more purest, like every time we'd meet Joshua, he'd be like, oh, work in latent space, try to plot distributions and et cetera, et cetera. And then we realized that like, for example, cycle GANs just don't have the specificity that we need. That's when we cut it up into two steps, which is more an engineering approach. But nowadays, like everyone wants to do everything end to end. And yeah. for me, end to end with GANs is just like a nightmare because we tried like uh, plotting things. We tried dimensionality reduction. Like there's just it's so hard to, to figure out what you're actually manipulating because like images and all you have all these channels. And and so, um, I mean, having worked a few years in, in, um, in companies, for me, like engineering applications are fine. Like pipelines are, 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 are what companies are made of, right? You, ju- you don't train an end-to-end network to, to do a question answering chatbot. You'll have a parser, you'll have a general, like you'll have all these different steps. Yeah. And so I was always like the person like, I realized that, you know, deep learning is cool, but can we like break it up into pieces and then like create a pipeline out of them? Uh-huh. And people are like, no, 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 latent space, like representational learning. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, 
So, uh, so there's a trade-off to be had between like really, really cool ML and getting stuff done. So we're trying to find that. Nice. And was it super computationally expensive to develop the models and get them trained and all that? So for, for the longest time until like a few months ago, essentially we would only uh, run on, on like small images, like 64 by 64 pixels. That doesn't details. sound very interesting. No, but you know, it's enough to figure out what's going on in an image and it's around, it's enough to figure out if it's flooding the sky and things like that. But now that we've ramped up to actual bigger images, it takes a while. It takes two to three days to try and again. And if you're doing a hyperparameter search, so like we don't do grid search, but still even random search, you, you still need to, tr to train, you know, 12 models times however many configurations you have. So it really, really adds up. And um, we're lucky that in Quebec, uh, we're almost 100% hydroelectricity. So we don't feel so bad about it. But still, like oftentimes, it's not even part of the a part of the equations. Like even even our interns who are, are pretty environmentally aware, sometimes, you know, you're like, do you really need to run all of those experiments? Can, is there like a way of, of, of doing, you know, a subset or can, can we can we talk about this first? But it's true that in, in, in machine learning, it's kind of like, well, let's try all the possible combinations, the biggest GPU, all of our data and see what happens. And you're like, well, maybe that's not the best thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you, you you mentioned starting with the the 64 uh, by 64 images and looking for things like uh, you know putting the water in the sky that kind of thing can you maybe dig a little bit deeper into the overall kind of debugging process and you know how you would iterate to get this all to to work you've touched on it a, a few times thus far but yeah, maybe from that, from the lens of the specific lens of, you know, debugging and evaluation and understanding what's happening in the network to continue to improve it. So that's another super frustrating thing about GANs is that you can't really evaluate them. Mm -hmm. uh, typically in a classifier or, or whatever task people have set up, you know what you're up, you know what you want, you know, you want higher accuracy yeah. or F1 or whatever. With GANs, it's like you want pretty images or, right. or realistic or whatever. measurements. So we actually went down that rabbit hole uh, <laughs> with a, a friend from Stanford. They came out with a metric at NeurIPS last year that's called HYPE, uh, which essentially is like a human eye perception, perceptual evaluation. I think it stands for that. <laughs> and it's actually really interesting. So they set up this whole like kind of psychometric experiment where they would show people two images and they had to pick which one they see they thought was more realistic. And then if you do it enough times, you start seeing which images are, are, are considered, like which model, essentially, if you have like five different models, you see which model is considered more realistic by your subjects. And, but you need to do it, you know, a certain amount of times for it to be statistically significant. And say you retrain your model, you have to do it again. But we did uh, publish a paper uh, last year about this. And we spent a good like three, four months trying to figure out if there are like criteria, if there are actual features that are correlated with realism. And essentially, we didn't find any because there's so much variation in our images. It's not like we're we're generating human faces or, or, or you know, or cars. We're generating streets that can have cars, they can have houses, and mm -hmm. uh, they can have all these different objects. So it's really, really hard to pinpoint what constitutes um, realism. And so, I mean, that was an interesting experiment uh, last summer, but uh, I can't say we, we operationalized anything. And then this uh, this year, what before I before we move on from this uh, this was, is the idea that this that you've got this you, this hype metric that 
you could use kind of offline to evaluate things, but then you were also thinking about, well, can we train a model to, to do this, to pick out features that correlate to uh, realistic images? And then would you have tried to kind of build that into your discriminator in the GAN? Yeah, either build it into the discriminator or use it as a way of evaluating the outputs of our models. Because essentially, at this point, we've seen so many images that it's it's really hard. Like you train a network and you have your validation set and you have, I don't know, 10 or 20 or 50 images and you look through them and you're like, yeah, these look good. And then someone else trains another one and it's like, oh, those look good too. So, so how do you really pick which one of the models is, is doing the best job? And then yeah. sometimes I'm like, oh, I really like the, that water. And then someone else is like, no, it has too many ripples. You like ripples? And I'm like, yeah, I think I think ripples are cool. <laughs> someone else like, flooding doesn't have ripples. Flooding is flat. And you're like, yeah, but but they're kind of pretty, right? And it's like it's like this back and forth. And um, so it, so it, my idea was to like, yeah, to like put that into the pipeline. So once um, the model spits out some images, you would have some way of evaluating them and, and the realism. Didn't work. Didn't work. What we did this year um, is essentially the first part of our model, the masker. We wanted to evaluate how well it was doing. And so um, we're, we were working on like evaluation criteria to see if there were holes in the mask, to see if, uh, for example, there are like disconnected patches from like, like it has to segment the ground, right? So if there's a patch of the sky, we would penalize that. Um, that actually worked fairly well. And we could actually add that as a, a loss into our model. Uh, but the thing is, sometimes uh, like there's a a tree that's surrounded by water. And so there is like the masker is supposed to cut around the tree, but it would get penalized for it. So it's still an open question. It, it definitely helped a bit, but it wasn't like we figured out how to, how to solve that problem. It's, it's still an open problem. And, you know, nowadays we like, we ask our friends, we ask people at Mila, we're like, what do you think of these images <laughs> at this point? They're like, just whatever. <laughs> Stop asking us to evaluate your floods. And we're like, yeah, but we really need to know. <laughs> and plus the idea for us is for, for it to be super robust, right? Because typically in GAN papers, they, they cherry pick the best ones, and which makes sense, right? You want to show how well your model is doing, but we don't have that, that luxury because we need any address, any place in the world to work with our model. So it has to be really robust. It has to cover rural, urban, you know, whether you can see the sky because the camera's far away or it's close and you can't see the sky at all. So it mm -hmm. needs to work on all of those images. And, and that's why it's pretty tough because you can't just, you know, focus on one single use case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think that this would necessarily apply to your scenario where there's like a very subjective response, no right answer, but it's making me think that like, you know, as opposed to CAPTCHA where I'm doing work for Google, like training them how to identify fire hydrants, you know, it'd be great if there was like some AI for social good CAPTCHA based system where, you know, folks can help projects like yours that are actually have some, some value in the world by doing simple things to get access to websites and prove that they're not robots. That's a really good idea. The closest I've seen to that, uh, MIT has a had a project called Deep Empathy, and essentially they use cycle GANs to uh, simulate the impacts of war, which is really interesting. And then they on the website there's a, a quiz you can do to see which images for you are the most like uh, strongly associated with war, and and because essentially the idea is is kind of like climate change. What kind of images would make people realize what's happening in Syria? And so um, they actually integrated to that, that into their website. And we were planning to have kind of a, a subpart of our website dedicated to that as well. Do you think that this yeah. image really communicates climate change or is it just like pretty ripples? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit about the the computational cost of running these kinds of models, and you've done some work to try to quantify that, not just for your project, but more broadly. Can you talk a little bit about Code Carbon? Yes. So uh, Emma Strabell's paper came out last year and she was on your show. And it was great because it was awareness raising. But then I had all these people emailing me like, oh, you're fighting climate change, but you pollute as much as five cars in their <laughs> lifetime. And I was like, but that's not the case, right? But it's, but I didn't have any 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 data to back my claim. And you know, for a scientist, that's the worst because you're like, that's not true. And they're like, prove it. And you're like, I can't prove it, but it's not true. And so uh, me and some colleagues decided to essentially create a tool uh, in order to quantify or at least estimate because it's really, really hard to quantify exactly uh, how much energy you're consuming when you uh, are training a neural network because often it's on the cloud and you're sharing a GPU with others. Or, or it's even a local com- computing structure, and you're and you're using it. You know, uh, sometimes it's you, sometimes it's another person. There's queues. I mean, there's so many factors. But we decided to focus on like a simple use case. Like there's a, a set GPU with a set memory, essentially. And uh, depending on the hardware, you know exactly how much energy it uses. So that's that's pretty easy. And then depending on the grid that you're connected to, you know the energy mix of the grid. So there's this really great startup called Electricity Map, who are essentially trying to plot all of the energy grids worldwide and to represent how clean they are and not. And actually, until like, depending on where you are, that those grids can be either national, but they can also be like regional. Like in the US, uh, there's, 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 I don't know, 20, 30 grids. And, and some of them are really, really clean. Some of them are really, really coal based. Some of them like, there's, there's so much uh, variation there. And then, so depending on where your infrastructure is connected to, it could either be locally because you're your GPU is, you know, in your house or in your university, or it could be on the cloud, and then it's connected to a grid wherever that server is. So depending on on where that is, your your carbon emissions can vary up to like 80, 80 times. So, for example, in, in Quebec, where where we have hydroelectricity, which is almost zero carbon, and then if you train in, I don't know, Taiwan or or Texas, it, it's it's almost pure coal, and then it's like you know a ridiculous amount of of pollution. So just by choosing what grid you train on, you can make a huge impact. Just by tr- choosing the hardware, you can make a huge impact. So uh, we started with a website just where people would manually enter, like essentially like the, the infrastructure, the region, et cetera, et cetera. And you would have an estimation. And now we're working on a Python package that's that's coming out. And it's uh, it's essentially going to be rolling in the background. So all you have to do is call it when you're calling your neural network or, or any piece of code. It can be any piece of code. And at the end, it's going to print out a an estimate of the CO2 emissions that you, you had, and then and then tell you, well, you could have done this, this, and this, and, and compare it to like miles driven or hours of television watched, things like that. So, so it gives you an idea of like, what does that represent in my, in my carbon footprint? Is that is that really like a big chunk or no? Oh, wow. So we're trying to do our, our, our part to, to raise awareness. And essentially the idea is that people disclose this because it's actually, uh, for me, it's also a societal issue because people don't realize how, power hungry and resource hungry machine learning has gotten. And so if you want to, if you want to put your foot in, uh, get your foot in the door in terms of machine learning right now, you need access to a significant amount of hardware. Like if you want to have a GAN that generates, you know, uh, HD, HD images, you need TPUs, you need months, you need like thousands of dollars, essentially, unless you have an in-house computing system, right? And so 
I think this is, a, this is a whole issue because we're, we're becoming this elitist field where you have to work for a big company in order to make the, the big results, in order to publish at the big conferences. And then if you're just an underdog, uh, you can make a fundamental breakthrough for sure. But if you're doing applied AI, you, where, where are you going to get that, that, that money, those resources? So for me, it's, it's definitely like environmental and, and societal as an issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the Python library, what are the what is it looking at? What are the inputs or yeah, you're you're hooking it into your code? Is it uh, is it just tracking like execution time or is it looking at the actual uh, code path through your you know through your training or like how um, how high a level of fidelity are you trying to to get with this uh, with the information that it's providing? So we're essentially tracking GPU usage because this is also something that people don't realize is that it actually varies a lot. And for example, if you're data loading too much, uh, your GPU is going to be waiting for a long time until like your CPU loads the data or copies the data or whatever. There's a lot of IO. And so, for example, you can track that and, and you know, if you can do it using command line or now, there, now there's tools for it. But this is something that, that people should do because if you take a 48 gigs GPU and it's spending most of its time waiting for your CPU, it's still online and you know somebody else could be using it, but also it's still consuming energy. So uh, GPU usage, um, it detects based on your IP, like where you're connected to the internet and so what grid mm -hmm. you're using, um, the actual GPU model that you're using uh, that, that uh, impacts the energy efficiency of the model, uh, mm -hmm. of, the, of the GPU, sorry. And then... Um, and then training time essentially. And then so at the end it spits out like a report saying, you know, your GPU efficiency was this, uh, you, this was the, the kilowatt hours that you used. And then this is the estimated CO2 you emitted. And we are actually working on a dashboard so you can, you can see like across experiments, across projects, like, um, my my dream is to do a like a curve where you have accuracy, like how much accuracy you're improving versus how much CO2 it's emitting. So essentially it would start out pretty low, right? Because at the beginning you're having these massive accuracy gains. And then at the end it's going to go exponential because you're gaining what 0.5% in like an hour and then you're emitting yeah. all this CO2. So I thought that would be really cool because you can actually choose a sweet spot. It's like same with like any kind of, uh, of metric, right? You can say, okay, well, when it hits or, it, or when it, you know, starts um, rising exponentially, then just stop training because it's it's just not environmentally conscious anymore. Yeah. If you were to kind of take the, the very, very broad view on that metric and think about what the graph of our overall energy usage for all of our machine learning efforts versus the kind of the benefit that they're providing society. Where do you think we are on that curve? <laughs> so not going in the right direction at all. I think that it's a problem in deep learning nowadays. Like it's like train your model is not doing well, train on more data, uh, mm -hmm. add more layers, right? Like the, the, the people's reflexes are essentially bigger, more instead of being like, I mean, people who have been around in the fields for a long time, for example, like Joshua, their first uh, reflex is not get more data. It's have you looked at your model? Have you figured out what it's doing? Do you do you know what's going on in these layers? Um, are you sure it's the right learning rate? Are you sure it's right? I mean, it's like these checks and balances are more about the fundamental stuff. Whereas mm -hmm. nowadays it's like, oh, just throw more data at it. It's, it's going to do better or or like, you know, do a VGG, add some more stuff. And it's and essentially it's because we can, right? It's, it's because it's, it's not really something that we, we factor in. But just because we can doesn't mean we should. 
And and so like sometimes I read about these papers and it's like oh we we trained on all of this uh, all of these images and we had like a a point two or point seven uh, um, increase over state of the art and you're like yeah but you trained on 150,000 images like yeah good job you you beat soda on ImageNet but was it really worth it was, was yeah. that was was there a better way of doing it a more kind of mindful way of doing it yeah yeah and we're starting to see movements in the various conference communities and and elsewhere to incorporate various transparency metrics in papers like uh, reproducibility is one thing that, you know, the the community is pushed for code to be published with papers and to produce reproducibility metrics and things like that. And there have been some papers that have, you know, uh, kind of volunteered to, you know, take it on to publish their compute costs and, and things like that. Do you see that? Is there a broader you know, movement to try to push that to happen in the machine learning community? Not at all. And we were writing our paper last year about like quantifying the, the emissions of machine learning. We were like, well, let's give people some examples, right? Because Emma, what they did is, is they trained their own model and that's where they got their figures. And we're like, well, we must, we must be able to get some data, right? Like some people must, and we didn't find a single, like of the major papers we looked at, I think over like 75 papers or even a hundred that we looked at, no, no one actually said, both hardware, time, and where they were located, because like essentially you need those those uh, all of those criteria. Because sometimes they said, "Oh, we trained on, for example, TPUs." Okay, that's one thing, but yeah. how long? And sometimes it's like we trained for seventy two hours, but without the. And so there's always something missing. And so we actually I had a table in the in the um, in the paper that I tried to populate, and it, there was always something missing. And finally, we scrapped the table because we just couldn't mm-hmm. even. Um, even publish it. And then I think that we're kind of one step behind because now, for example, NeurIPS asked for the social impacts uh, of research to be published. Right. So that's starting, that that particular ball is, is, is starting to roll. But in terms of environmental, it, I think we're, we're still, that would be like the next thing that people should um, should, should should disclose. And I think it's just a matter of, of giving people the tools. It's not like, I don't think people don't want to. It's just that it's just too complicated. How, how would you estimate? And unless you're really like really, really interested in this and you know exactly what your hardware is and stuff and exactly how, how clean your grid is. But for, uh, I don't know, the, the average machine learning researcher, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, there's a very big barrier to access to, to disclosing the environmental impacts of their work. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess we should mention that, you know, for folks that are listening to this podcast, this is a topic that we're going to be taking on in our uh, upcoming TwimmelFest event, and you'll be leading a discussion uh, at that conference. What can you tell us about your, your thoughts or plans for that discussion? I, th- I think it would be great to bring together uh, people who are who are tackling this issue from different aspects. I mean, there's people who are working really on like the quantification aspect. There's there's great work being done in in different in different places, including Emma, for example. There's people who are working really on like the climate positive impact, uh, like applications of machine learning. So everyone from climate change AI, but also there's such a big uh, network of people. Like every year in our workshops, we have, you know, 30, 40 people present about transportation, cities. Um, so there's there's that whole aspect. There's also kind of the um, more like industry aspect. So it, it, I think it would be interesting to incorporate like people who are actually doing this stuff, not, not in a research lab, but really on the ground, because I think they face their own problems. For instance, you know, legislation or, or, or like just the, 
how do you how do you push a green technology versus a, a, a less a less green one? And so I think that there's like so many aspects to this issue. It'd be great to bring everyone around the table and then have them share their experiences and, and hopefully come come out with some action items or some you know call to actions that everyone can can get behind. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, well, Sasha, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.